0: My text tonight will be taken from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider It robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here ends the reading of God's word. In Presbyterian circles, the name of J. Gresham Machin is an honored one. He was one of the founders of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, one of the leaders of the forming of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He died when he was just 55 years old. And his last recorded words were these, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, No hope without it. Tonight, I want to talk about the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. What Machen spoke about just hours before his death, something that isn't talked about all that much in Christian circles today. Several years ago, you may remember the movie, that was produced by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ. It was a very graphic movie that centered upon the physical sufferings of Jesus. And that's what gets the attention on Good Friday. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be placed in the hands of sinful men, and he suffered greatly for it. Indeed, our creeds speak of this very point, the suffering of our Savior. It says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into hell. Our standards call this the passive obedience of Christ. The shorter catechism puts it this way in question 27 Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, and made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death on the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Yet there is another aspect of the obedience of Christ that doesn't get nearly the attention. The active obedience of Christ refers to Jesus keeping the whole law completely throughout his life. He not only suffered sacrificially for our sins. He lived the life that we should have lived. In other words, Jesus was like us in every way except without sin. Now, for many of us, that's just a given. Jesus lived a perfect life. What else could he do? He's Jesus. Tempted like we are, yet without sin. The active obedience of Christ, however, means that every day leading up to Good Friday was essential for our salvation. Jesus had to fulfill the whole law completely throughout his life. Now, we have more details about the last week of the life of Christ than we do his entire three years of public ministry and maybe even the whole 33 years of his life. But every day of his life was significant, even though we know very little about uh, most of them. As a second Adam, Jesus had to live a full life in complete conformity to the law of God. It wouldn't have been enough for Jesus just to arrive on the earth as an adult and to do everything that he did and say everything that he said. Good Friday wouldn't have been redemptive without all of the previous days, months, and years that led up to that day. The second Adam had to do completely what the first Adam failed to do. And what was it that the first Adam failed to do? Oh, obey the only commandment that was given to him. Don't eat of that one tree. Well, forbidden fruit is hard to resist. But that wasn't the only transgression of Adam. Adam and Eve both failed to glorify God in all that they did so that they could enjoy His presence forever. Obedience is more than just avoiding a particular act. Obedience in the context of the covenant of life meant being in relationship with the only true God who is absolutely holy. Obedience is summarized for us in the greatest of all the commandments. We should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obedience is treasuring God more than anything else. It's seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Obedience is finding out what pleases the Lord. Obedience is enjoying His presence. Jesus actively did this throughout His whole life. Obedience is so much more than just saying no to a particular sinful act. Obedience cannot be understood just in the negative. Obedience is what you do, not just what you avoid. The obedience of Jesus was necessary for our salvation. Theologians speak of the double imputation as it pertains to Christ, our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross and his righteousness is imputed to us who believe his active obedience is credited to us by grace through faith. In justification, God not only erases our sinful record and pays our debt, he credits the whole value of his righteousness to us. We need both the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus in order to be saved. Without the active obedience of Christ, the best we would have is a do-over, a mulligan, if you will. Our sins would be forgiven, but if we lack the righteousness of Christ, we're back to where Adam was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. We'd be without sin, but that would still be far short of the righteousness of Christ. And that won't get you very far. It certainly will not get you into heaven. R.C. Sproul likes to be provocative, and he was when he said this, we are saved by works not ours, but the work of Christ. Paul said, he said, said essentially the same thing when he wrote in Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law that are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. Again, our catechism writes, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all of our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That is the active obedience of Jesus Christ. And like Machen said, there is no hope without it. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died. That's the passive obedience of Christ. We need both to be justified before God. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. What do you understand by the word suffered in the context of the Apostles' Creed, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Now, why emphasize the active and the passive obedience of Christ? Well, it's certainly captured for us in our text in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The obedience of Christ to the point of death means more than just a willingness to go to the cross. It was his real obedience that led to the cross. Few years ago a popular television preacher was being interviewed on the old Larry King show, and he was asked why he didn't preach about sin like most Christian ministers do. And the pastor's answer was revealing. He said that he just didn't feel called to emphasize that. He said, Well, after all, we all sin. We're all sinners. But God loves us anyway. This God loves us anyway mindset completely misses the meaning of the atonement. It makes God to be out like a kindly old grandfather who winks at our sin and says, Don't worry about it. Don't beat yourself up over that. I love you anyway. God hates sin. His nature abhors it. As light and darkness cannot coexist, neither can sin and righteousness dwell together. God's justice demands that sin be judged and paid for. There are no little sins in the sight of God's holiness. It was our sin that caused Jesus to cry out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The death of Jesus on the cross is not meant to make us feel bad about our little transgressions. The death of Jesus is meant to cause us to see how useless it is to try to live a righteous life on our own. We'll either live delusional lives, thinking that we're better than we're not, than we are, or we'll give up the faith altogether. Martin Luther said this All of us are stuck in the muck of our own holiness and think that by our lives and works, we can pacify God's judgment and earn a place in heaven. Tim Keller put it this way, it's not your sins, just your sins, that will keep you out of the kingdom. It is your damnable good works, thinking that the good that you have done will surely make up for the bad things that you've done, will keep multitudes out of heaven's gates. It will keep them far from the gospel and far from the meaning of the cross. Your righteousness and my righteousness are nothing but filthy rags, we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The ironic thing about the active and passive obedience of Christ is that when we give up our own attempts of trying to make ourselves worthy of heaven and trust solely on the work of Christ, we are more motivated to honor the Lord with our lives. See, there needs to be a congruence between what we confess and how we live. If we say that we trust in Christ alone for our salvation but we live like we're trying to prove that we are worthy for heaven. As I said before, we'll either live under the delusion that we're better than we are or we'll just give up the notion of trying to do what cannot be done and give up the faith altogether. The cross of Jesus Christ pays the debt of our sin. His obedience to the point of death gives us what we could never gain on our own. In Christ alone, there is atonement for sin. In Christ alone, there is redemption. In Christ alone, there is the righteousness that we must possess in order to be saved. If you are a believer and you come that day before the judgment seat of God, you'll not just be forgiven. The Father will look upon you as he does his Son. And you're not going to want to point to anything about yourself. That would ruin the moment. Why would you want to point to Christ? That is your only hope. Let me close with another quotation from the Heidelberg Catechism. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, I've never kept never having kept any of them and still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I have never sinned nor been a sinner and if, as if I had perfectly Obeyed as Christ obeyed for me. All I need do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Let us pray. Therefore, it says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father by your grace because of the righteousness of Christ may this be true for everyone here this evening we ask this in Jesus name Amen